Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word, that it is a, a gift and, and treasure to us. Um, we thank you for the riches um, in it. We thank you that you, by your Spirit, um, help us to um, understand uh, and to see you revealed uh, through your word. We pray that you would do that this morning. Help us to um, help us to uh, understand and be pointed towards uh, Christ. Uh, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, we, we long for good leaders, don't we? We want uh, leaders who are, who are just, who are fair, who tell the truth, who keep their promises, uh, leaders who aren't driven by their own motives or their own agendas, leaders who are courageous enough to tell the truth uh, and to stand up for what is right, leaders who love the Lord and care for his people. Um, and not just in, in politics, is it? It's in every part of life that we long for this. We want, uh, we want judges who will judge fairly uh, and actually punish those who deserve it. We want church leaders who truly teach God's word and will lead God's people with courage, with integrity. We want bosses who are fair and kind. We want school principals who will lead with integrity and care for our kids. We long for good leaders. Think about um, during, during an election time, I'm not sure if, if you get excited about that prospect later in the year of the election coming up, um, uh, but in the lead up to an election, how do you, how do you re- react to all the campaigning? Um, how do you experience that? As I listen to, to campaigns, as I've listened to campaigns in the past, it seems as though um, the thinking is that if we could just get good leaders, if we could just vote the right people in, uh, then everything would work itself out. Crime would be solved, the economy would flourish, the housing crisis would be resolved, people would be cared for. Um, all things would turn out for good as long as we vote the right people in. So is this the right way to think? How do we find truly good leaders and how do they lead well? How should we think about this? So um, we'll see, and we, we've seen in these, in these passages, these chapters from Deuteronomy, that these aren't just our questions. These are the questions um, behind those chapters. Uh, remember the people, the Israelites are just about to go into the land that God has promised them, the promised land. Uh, it, it's a rich and beautiful land, and Moses sits them down and explains to them and tells them how they are to live as God's people in the land that he's giving them. Um, If you think back through Deuteronomy, we've been reminded of what God has done and is doing for them, of his grace, of his love for them, what it looks like to be in covenant relationship with him. And we're exploring now in these these chapters, um, in this broader section of um, how uh, God's people should live as God's people, what it looks like for them uh, to live as those who point towards the living God. So Moses is laying out for them the good life that God is giving them, uh, a loving life with the living God. As God's people, they're supposed to live differently. They're to live holy lives that reflect the character of God who rescued them from Egypt to be his people. And they should also be led differently. Moses is about to die. He's not going with them into the promised land. He's not joining them. He's been... uh, this, this beacon of, of sorts of leadership uh, of their time as God's people so far. 
Um, so when he goes, they will, need, uh, they will need good leaders, leaders for every aspect of life together. They will need just judges. They will need good kings. They will need faithful priests and true prophets. And Moses lays out for them principles about how these leaders are to lead. And he shows, uh, God's word shows us that God's people need good leaders who love the Lord, uh, who obey his law and reflect his holiness. Who love the Lord, obey his law and reflect his holiness. But these aren't just ancient guidelines or traditional guidelines that we need to reform or, or do away with. They are helpful for us now as we long for good leaders. They show us how futile it is for us to trust in human leaders as well to solve all our problems. And they're going to point us to one leader who we truly can put our hope in. So let's dive in. Uh, Moses starts with guidelines for a just judge. He starts by laying down the law uh, for judges in chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, And if you have... Uh, the, the words in front of you, I'd encourage you to read along from, uh, from verse 18 of chapter 16. Uh, it reads, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Hmm. This makes sense so far, doesn't it? Uh, The judges that they appoint should be just. They should follow justice. It's in their name um, as their highest goal. They should be fair. They should not play favourites or take bribes. Uh, They should judge with a righteous judgment. Basically, they're to reflect the character of the God who rescued them from Egypt. He is a just God. He is a righteous God, a God who shows no favourites, but who always judges with perfect justice. The judges of God's people are to be like that. Uh, They should be firm, but they should be fair. And further into chapter 17, Moses gives them an example of how and that's in the case of, of false worship. Remember, we, we've uh, read earlier that they're to worship God alone in the way that he chooses, the way that he has made them to worship. That's what the first and second commandments were about. Uh, no other gods and no images. And to break this for God's people is a serious crime. So what should the judges do if they suspect that someone has broken this command? Well, they, they don't just rush in. We see a process. We see that they should investigate. They should make due inquiry. Uh, verse uh, 6 of chapter 17 says that this um, has to include two or three witnesses. They're not to just uh, go off the, the hearsay of one person seeking, perhaps seeking vengeance on another. Um, but there is, a, there is a process for this, a just process. And if the accusation is true, they shall take the person outside the gates and they should stone them to death. It seems like a harsh penalty, um, but for God's people, this is a very serious crime. They've committed treason against the Lord, the one who rescued his people. They have broken the covenant, their relationship with him. 
It's like they've committed adultery against him. It's a serious thing. And it puts the whole community, the whole people, the whole nation, it puts them in danger. So for the sake of all, the judges must carry out this penalty. They don't rush into it. They are careful. But they don't mess about with sin or accommodate sin either. And for the difficult cases, the judges can go to the central place that God will choose, uh, and there the judges and the priests will consult and declare the decision. This sounds good so far, sounds like a good um, system, a good way of doing things, doesn't it? But the reality for Israel was far from this ideal. When they went into the land, it seems um, that they did appoint judges in the towns, and many probably did judge justly. But the people turned away from the Lord. They didn't follow his commands. They got into a cycle of, of worshipping other gods and in judgment God would send other nations to rule over them and then they would cry out to God and he would send judges to rescue them. But even these judges were a bit of a mixed lot, weren't they? Um, guys like Samson who were greedy, violent, who were lustful. Many of these judges, they didn't rule justly. Um, And you can read through the book of Judges that you see more and more deterioration into lawlessness, into idolatry. These, These judges were not fulfilling the role that God called them to do. Later, the kings would take on this role of judge, but many took advantage of the people. Israel needed just judges, didn't they? But if they were hoping in human leaders, they were sure to be disappointed. As we look back on these, on these chapters, this points us towards a better judge, one who is perfectly righteous, one who always rules with perfect justice, who never takes a bribe or, or shows favourites, who will one day judge all people who have ever lived. And that's Jesus, God's own son. When he came 2,000 years ago, he came not to condemn the world, but to save all who trust in him. He suffered and died the death that we deserve because of our rebellion against God so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven. He took the judgment that we deserve. But that's not the end of the story. He, he also said in John chapter 5 that God the Father has given him, uh, sorry, has given all judgment into his hands. He is the perfectly righteous judge as well. His first coming was to save, but at this second coming, he will come as the judge of the living and the dead, the one every one of us will stand before. And that's what Paul says um, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, He writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus is a judge worth putting our hope in. Imagine a judge who not only rules with righteousness, but who also offers himself up to receive the penalty that others are due. And this is what Jesus does for us. And he does so perfectly and with all authority. In this life, we see all sorts of injustice, secret crimes that people get away with, crime that gets not much more than a slap on the wrist, others punished beyond what they deserve, Innocents punished for crimes they they didn't commit or taken advantage of by others in positions of power and authority. This world is full of injustice. I'm sure that you can see it around you. But there there is hope. 
the truth uh, is that no one will ultimately get away with anything. Justice will finally be done. We have it promised to us by God himself. All sin will be justly punished, whether through Jesus' death in our place or eternal punishment for those who don't trust in him. No human leader can fill this hope for true justice. But Jesus, God's own son, is the just judge who will set all things right. So that brings us to our second category of of leader. The people don't just need a just judge, they need a good king. Moses knows that eventually the people will ask for a king. God anticipates it. In fact, God says that they must appoint the king that he will choose. The king should be an Israelite, not a foreigner who might lead them after other gods, but someone who can lead them to be faithful to the Lord. He should also be wholehearted in his love for and trust in the Lord. And that's that's what's behind verses 16 and 17. You can read uh, there in chapter 17. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in, in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. He's not supposed to acquire heaps of horses. He's not to assemble a mighty army to trust in or to conquer the world. Remember, they're meant to trust the Lord, the, the Lord their God, to fight for them. And especially, he's not to go back to Egypt, where God has rescued them from. Uh, that would be to go back to slavery, to trust in the very ones that God has rescued them from. And he's not to collect wives, excessive riches, which will turn away his heart. Sorry, which will turn his heart away from trusting in and loving the Lord. One, one king in particular might spring to mind here, and if you're thinking of Solomon, you're on, you're on the right track, and we'll come back to look at him in a minute. Moses also says that the, the king is meant to be under God's law. He's meant to know it. He's meant to obey it. And take a moment just uh, to think how strange this would be for the ancient world to tell a king that they're to be under God's law. If you, if you were a king in the ancient world, you, you were the law, you embodied the law, your, your word was the law. In Egypt, as an example, you were even considered to be a god. Uh, but that's not the case in Israel. The king is under God's law. He's supposed to know it inside and out, from verse 18 there. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." Did you see why the king is supposed to know the law? It's so that he learns to fear the Lord. This is not uh, the kind of fear that causes him to turn away from God in terror, but the kind of fear that leads to loving, worshipping and obeying the, Lord, obeying the Lord wholeheartedly. And this is so that he remembers and learns his place, so that his heart isn't lifted up above his brothers, but that he remembers that they 
that he and they are both God's people by grace, under God's good law. And also so that he obeys God's commands. And if he does, he will know God's blessings. That's how this covenant works. He will continue long in his kingdom, he and his children. So that's the requirements for the king. And as we look back again, we ask the same question again. How did this turn out for Israel? What happened after this? Did they, did they follow these guidelines? How did their kings fare? So let's just look at one as an example. Solomon came to mind um, as we were reading before. Um, that's David's son, Solomon. You can read about him in First Kings. Uh, after David, he, he really represents um, the height of Israel's kings, at least in terms of uh, prosperity and wealth. But how does he stack up against uh, Deuteronomy, against these guidelines? We have no record of, of Solomon making himself a copy of the law. The record that we do have is, is a record that Solomon had an army of more than 12,000 horsemen. Okay, not a great start. That he imported, um, even imported thousands of horses from Egypt. He married hundreds of foreign wives. He was one of the richest, me- richest men in the ancient world. He set up altars and shrines to all sorts of other gods for his wives. He totally failed the Deuteronomy king test. And I might read, uh, actually, from 1 Kings um, chapter 10. You can find it in your Bibles if you, if you would like. And it's, and it's uh, a recap and a summary of, um, of Solomon as king. And as we, read, as we read these passages in 1 Kings, that's chapter 10, uh, verse 23 through to chapter 11, you can really he- hear these guidelines from Deuteronomy being referenced. So I'll read there. It says, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought, um, brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 and so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the, god, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for, for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Not a great uh, assessment, is it, as we reference these guidelines in Deuteronomy. And if you're, if you're reading through First Kings, you can see these pop up um, continually. They're, they're the backdrop to the writer's assessment of Israel's kings. And the kings after Solomon get worse as well. Many of them much worse. They don't love God wholeheartedly or obey his law. They lead God's people astray. And there, there is the occasional bright spot, of course, but they are the exception that prove the rule. The kings of God's people failed miserably. So, so what's happened to God's promise then? God um, promised King David that one of his descendants would rule on the throne forever. The Psalms were expecting a great king who would rule over the whole earth, as we, we've read in Psalm 72. And yet, because of their rebellion against God, the Israelites are conquered by Babylon and carted off into exile. It seems like God's promise has failed. Until God provides the good king, the promised king. Remember, uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's his title. He is the anointed one, the promised king that God's people had been waiting for. The good king who knows and lives out God's law perfectly. As God's own son, he even sits his people down to declare and explain the law and what it looks like to live as his people. He loves God with wholehearted love. He doesn't have riches. He doesn't have many wives. He even gives up his own life to suffer and die on behalf of his people. And even more, he's raised from the dead as the risen victorious king, the one who has even defeated the great enemy of sin and and death. To him has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And one day he will return to establish, to establish his reign for all time. Again, we, we get frustrated with our leaders, don't we? We long for a leader who can come and set things right. A king of sorts who, are, who can make things right, who can defeat our enemies for us. In Jesus, we have a guarantee that the ultimate enemy is defeated. We have the guarantee that he will come and set things right. We don't actually have this guarantee with any human leader or government, do we? No matter how tempted we are to think that way. Not with, uh, not with Liberal or Labour, with Greens, with One Nation. All of these will always disappoint us. All of them have always disappointed. If we put our hope in them, we will be let down. Our hope must be in the Lord Jesus, in God's promised King, the one that he promises to send and that he has sent, the only truly good King. We need his kingdom to come, to prevail now in our lives and the lives of those around us and ultimately when he returns to set all things right. And the people also need a faithful priest. 
Moses lays out provision here for how the priests are to be cared for uh, to begin with. You see the tribe of Levi that the priests came from. Uh, there's no land for them to inherit uh, like, the, like the rest of the tribes of Israel. Uh, they're to live in cities amongst the other tribes. Um, they're spread out so that they can do their job of teaching God's law to all God's people. And they will travel in shifts to the central place to fulfill their duties uh, at the temple. And how will they live? We can see uh, there in verse 1 of chapter 18. The, Le- the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So God himself will provide for the Levites through the offerings of his people. The people are to do this because God has chosen Levi to stand and minister before the Lord in the temple. And this is something that the people need, so it is right for them to support them. Not only do they act as teachers, but they are the priests, they're the mediators, they're the go-betweens between God and his people, representing the people to God by offering sacrifice and representing God to the people by teaching and proclaiming his law. They mediate between God and his people, and so it's fitting that the people should look after them. But there's more going on as we read on in in chapter 18 here than just how Israel is to look after the priests. That is important, uh, but there's also something to say about uh, the priests themselves. They are to be wholehearted and faithful in their love for the Lord. They might think that they get the raw end of the deal, but that's not true. God himself is their inheritance. He's no second prize. The land and all its blessings, they're only good because they come from the Lord. He himself is the source of all good. He he himself is the source of all the inheritance of Israel. He himself is the source of real life. That means that faithful priests will depend on the Lord. They will love him wholeheartedly. They will serve him and serve his people faithfully. They will teach the law truly and they will obey it themselves. They won't take advantage of the people or their position. Uh, They will be faithful in all that they do. That's what a faithful priest is meant to do. But again, that's not entirely what the people get, is it? Um, There's no doubt many, many priests who would have served faithfully, but then we read stories of others like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, that we read about in 1 Samuel. They were entirely corrupt. They took the best parts of the offering for themselves, uh, even though they weren't the bits that they were entitled to. They would sleep uh, with the women working at the tabernacle. They used the people for their own gain without any fear of the Lord. Israel uh, had other unfaithful priests. They had priests who didn't love God wholeheartedly, who didn't obey God's law. Priests who brought in worship of foreign gods into the Lord's own temple. Priests who even condemned God's own son when he threatened threatened their positions of power and influence. God's people needed a faithful priest, someone to truly represent them before God and represent God to them. But even the good priests were sinners. No one was perfect. Even the good priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. And so the people needed something better, a truly faithful priest. 
And that's what we have in Jesus, a truly faithful high priest. That's what the author of Hebrews says uh, at the end of chapter 4. It reads uh, from Hebrews, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our high priest. He is our perfect priest, one who can truly represent us to God. And that's because he has been tempted in every way as we are. He knows your suffering. He knows your temptations. He knows your griefs. And yet he can also perfectly represent God to us because he is God's own son, the eternal son, God himself. He offers not a sacrifice for his own sins, but a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And through him we can come to God with confidence. Confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Human leaders will let us down. We've... we've, been saying it over and over again. Unfortunately, uh, religious and church leaders will let us down as well. Some are false teachers who are trying to lead us astray. Others are faithful, but at the end of the day are human, limited and weak. Only Jesus is the one uh, who will never let us down. He's the one who is truly available 24-7, and through him we can find mercy and grace to help in every need. So that brings us to our last uh, kind of leader that the people need. The people will need a true prophet. Moses is about to die. He's been the mediator going between the people and God, and he's also been the prophet. He's been the one who brings God's word to God's people when they need to hear it. So when he goes, who will call them to obey God's word? When Moses is dead, it would be tempting for them to turn to other ways to get that guidance from the Lord. That's what Moses warns them not to do uh, in chapter 18 from verse 9. They're not to practice divination or tell fortunes or interpret omens. They're not to consult with the dead through mediums. These are all ways that the nations around them um, were seeking guidance. Uh, Those were the ways that the nations were seeking guidance truth and seeking to hear from God as such, uh, but God's people are to be different. To do these things would be to turn away from the Lord uh, and to seek the answers themselves. God promises to provide guidance for his people when they need, when they need it. And we can see that in verse 15 uh, of chapter 18 there. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So God will raise up a prophet like Moses for his people. 
This is a prophet who will go between them and the Lord like Moses did uh, at Mount Sinai. The Lord will speak to this prophet and the people must obey him. If they don't, the Lord will hold them to account. And we see that God sends many prophets to, uh, to the people, prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah and Jeremiah, many prophets who come to warn the people of God's judgment for their breaking of the covenant and call them to repent, call them to obey the Lord. And these were faithful, long-suffering prophets, prophets who gave much in obedience to the Lord and service of God's people. And yet none of them quite lived up to Moses, did they? They didn't quite live up to him in their ability to lead and direct the people. So God's people were still waiting for a prophet like Moses. So God sent them a prophet better than Moses. Again, we can read in Hebrews in chapter 3 from verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope." Jesus is the prophet, like Moses, the one Moses predicted. Uh, and Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 3. But the author of Hebrews is saying something more here. Jesus is not just a prophet like Moses. He is a prophet better than Moses. Moses is a servant who met with God on the mountain and brought his word to God's people. Jesus is the son himself, come to speak with and to his people. Moses asked to see God's glory, but to see Jesus is to see God's glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. Jesus is the better prophet that the people were waiting for. It turns out that all along Moses was just an image of the true and better prophet, Jesus. Do we want to hear from God? Do we want to know what he's like? Do we want guidance? then we should look no further than Christ. There's no greater revelation to come. He is the pinnacle. He is God God himself revealed to us. Again, human prophets and leaders will disappoint us. And yet it's so easy um, to get caught up, isn't it? Even to get caught up in good, solid Christian teachers and teaching and yet to lose sight of the one that they are pointing to to spend more time in the books explaining God's word than time in his word itself. But Jesus is the true prophet, the one who reveals God, who goes between us and God. And there is none greater. So look to Jesus, trust in him, listen to what he says and obey. He is the true prophet God has given to his people. We need his words and work in our life. So in wrapping up, we can see that God's people longed for good leaders and Moses gave them guidelines to show that they need good leaders who love the Lord, obey his law and who reflect his holiness. But human leaders will only, uh, they will only ever disappoint and these laws were meant to point them, uh, to point them further, 
to show that they and we need the just judge who will one day judge the living and the dead and bring true justice forever. We need the good king who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth to establish his rule in us and one day to set all things right forever. We need the faithful priest who is wholehearted and faithful in his love for God and offers a perfect sacrifice, not for his own sin, but for ours. We need the true prophet, who is God the Son himself, come to reveal God to us in all his glory, so that we might know him in confidence and hope. We long for good leaders. We need Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, your word points us to and shows us uh, the one whom we truly need. We thank you that Jesus uh, came to live, uh, to die, to take the judgment that we deserve. Um, he came to reveal your, uh, your word to us, uh, to reveal uh, you to us. He came to, to rise again, um, to defeat uh, our ultimate enemy in sin and death, uh, and to lead his people in a righteous kingdom. Uh, and he came to rise again, uh, to ascend and to, to rule on high as a perfect, true, eternal king. And we, uh, we thank you for his goodness, for his glory, uh, and for uh, his love for us. And we ask that you would help us this week to look to him, to rely on him. And when uh, the leaders uh, in our lives disappoint us and let us down, that we would, uh, we would look to him uh, and that we would know that we can be sure about his promises to us and, and of our place in his eternal kingdom. And we pray in his name. Amen.